This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome back, everybody. It's great to have you back. And to welcome you to what's going to be a very special and very moving uh, and entertaining episode of our podcast, Extraordinary People, The Pride of Britain. Brought to you from all of us on the Pride of Britain team and also our friends at TSB. Now, as you all know, we've always been on a bit of a mission at the Pride of Britain to celebrate amazing people doing amazing things. And this week is no different. This episode features stories from some very strong women who have overcome a lot in their lives. And so we have called it Stronger Together. Because that idea of solidarity, of strength in numbers, the importance of being part of a community and family, of course, are themes that shine through. We will be discussing some difficult and some emotional topics, but there is plenty of hope and light in there too. Now, the Pride of Britain, as I always say, has felt uh, like a family. And my first guest is someone who really is at the heart of it all. She is a face and a voice you will all know well. She hosts our Pride of Manchester and our Pride of Birmingham Awards ceremonies. She's an actress, she's a singer, she's a presenter, and she's an all-round superstar and a wonderful woman. She is, of course, yes, you've guessed it, Kim Marsh, lovely to speak to you again. Uh, you. Tell me about the pride of Manchester. Was it as glorious as it looked? Do you know, it was absolutely fabulous. And I think, you know, because it was the first time we've been able to be back in a room like that together doing the Pride of Manchester Awards, it was just really, really super special. Um, I think everybody needed it right now. I think everyone just needs that, you know, that those stories and those uplifting moments. And I think it was just, it was wonderful. It was great to be back celebrating people. Was it one of those moments where you can't get and breathe out? <laughs> It was a bit. It was, a bit. It was uh, yeah. It was just, yeah. I, I, do you know? It was. It was. It was quite funny because I just. I think everybody was just really ready for it. I think everybody was just kind of, you know, really waiting for this for this for this night for so long. And um, and yeah, it was one of those moments where it was, you know the calm had to be instilled and it was all kind of, but it was one, it was absolutely wonderful. You know, we had some amazing people giving out awards and we had some, you know, amazing award winners as always, as you know, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it was, it was incredible night. It really was. It was wonderful. Oh, fantastic. Now, like you said, you know, we've had the two years of the, you know what, which I hate to mention yeah. Um, yeah. and things haven't been going on, but they have been going on in your life during that time, like to the nth degree, really. So first grandchild, Teddy, was, <laughs> he's, he's been around during um, all of the, the COVID time. You got married, you have yeah. another grandchild on the way, and your dad is still going strong and wonderful. Yeah. So tell me all about that. Yeah, so the last couple of years has been crazy for me, really. I mean, I left Corrie in late 2019 um, and had all these other things lined up to do. And then, of course, COVID says, oh, no, you don't, lady. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> okay, then that's going to be cancelled. Uh, I didn't have a clue, really, what was what was going to happen. My daughter had just moved out. Emily had just moved out with my grandchild, Teddy. They'd moved out. So that's the first time she's lived away from home with her own oh. baby as well so oh. I couldn't see her and all of that was like it that was crazy and um and then of course you know and then I started a whole new career started for me actually strangely during lockdown which was obviously um originally it was money money or your life with the lovely Matt Allwright yeah which then turned into morning live with Gethin um, and I was oh, like, Gethin Jones. <laughs> Gethin Jones, I know. That boy. Do you know, I felt so lucky um, to be able to to still work and, and be out and about doing things during that period of time because I know that, uh, you know, a lot of people weren't as fortunate and I, and, and I really felt very, very lucky at that, uh, at that point and to be kind of, adding another string to my bow which was quite uh interesting and it, it was a it was a weird period of time but it was it was also quite interesting for me because I was learning a lot about myself as well um 
and then of course um my dad was diagnosed with um uh stage four prostate cancer incurable cancer um in march of last year uh which threw a spanner into the works for all of us really as a family you know we all just life just turned upside down for us and I then decided to step away from morning live at that point because I just I, I couldn't cope with being away and being away from the family and uh, you know it was hard enough as it was without knowing that everything was kind of in turmoil here um, so so we did that and then of course Scott proposed to me in in June last year. <laughs> I know, and then you know, we, brought, we brought our wedding forward to October. Um, you know, we, we, we're absolutely completely devoted to each other anyway, and he just makes my life. And um, it, it felt fine for us to move things forward because we just wanted to make sure that Dad, because, you know, at that point, none of us really knew, you know, how quickly things would progress with Dad and whether or not he would actually be well enough to even be there on the day and whether he'd be able to walk me down the aisle um so we decided to bring the wedding forward and of course you were there i was and he did walk you down the aisle he did, he did. He did. <laughs> to a huge cheer as i remember he uh, did yeah. yeah he did and then and then a month later both my children got engaged so David <laughs> asked his fiance, well, he's now fiance Courtney to marry him. And Mikey asked Emily to marry her, marry him, sorry. And then David and Courtney found out they were having a baby just before Christmas. <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to this. Honestly, the last three years has been absolutely insane here. But some good, some bad. But there's never been a dull moment, Cal. No. <laughs> I know, I know, my lovely. And Scott, of course, uh, for those people listening who um, aren't aware, is a major in the army. Well, he's probably yeah. a captain now, is he? But he was a major. And, a major. Uh, and of course, he was on deployment as well during that time, wasn't he? It was just, you he know. Was. He was away on deployment from October 19 uh, yeah. and should have come back. He came back for his R&R, you know, his, R &R, his rest and recuperation in the, in the February for two weeks went back and then of course COVID hit and he should have been home in the April and ended up getting delayed out there by a month. So he didn't come back till May. So actually the six months that he was supposed to be away turned out to be seven. Um, and I, f I remember feeling really, I was so nervous at that point because obviously, you know, this new thing that was happening, this COVID, no one really knew much about it. And, I, and we still don't, do we really? I mean, yeah. we know more, but we, we still don't know uh too much about it and it was really i remember just feeling really scared and thinking you know it's going to happen you know where i need i want him to come back it was it was you know it was bad enough as it was without the the world going upside down you know and um but so that's a bit weird actually so you had you before pre-covid you scott emily teddy and polly all in the house and then half of them disappear and it's just you and Paul, is it then? No, it's David as well. So David's oh, still, David was David's 27 years old and he's showing no signs of moving out of here. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows which side his bread's buttered. And David, actually what happened was I gained a daughter during COVID. So I lost, Emily went and moved out, but David's partner, Courtney, <laughs> moved in because Courtney's an only child and her parents are like, you're either going to be with David or you're not going to be with David. So you're going to, ha you know, yeah. and that was a really difficult decision for yeah. them as well. They hadn't been together for very long at that point. So that was quite a, quite a, a brave thing to do was to suddenly, you know, join, you know, start living together, if you like, with someone else's mom. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a gamble, but it's, it's worked out really well. And actually, they're going to stay here, have the baby whilst they're still living with me and then do what they do. What Emily did, I guess, and just find their feet and then and then fly the nest. So uh, <laughs> well, yeah. we hear all this about you. And obviously we know you, you know, from very early days when you were singing and all, all these different, you know, acting. Obviously, Corrie, as you know, I used to not so much now. 
that used to be addicted to Coronation Street for very, very many years. And you're still only in your mid-40s, Kim. I, don't, I mean, it's like, what a life well-lived so far. Um, but I just want you to tell people, because when I was at the wedding and then you were talking about your lovely dad and about how you used to go on kind of building sites with him and everything, didn't you? You would, you, you'd properly like strapped to your dad at all yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah. Just tell us I about totally that. Yeah. So my dad always did and still does call me his shadow. Um, even now uh, I'll get a message at night saying, I love you, my shadow. And oh. I've always been my dad's shadow. I was always daddy's girl. I was always, you know, I'd follow him around the house and, and, you know, wherever dad went, I was there. Um, and that kind of went on into my teens because at that point, my dad years ago was in a band called Ricky and the Dominant Four. <laughs> we know his name's not Ricky, so he's clearly one of the Dominant Four. How dominant? I'm not too sure about. <laughs> so, so dad had this kind of, you know, dad had the entertainment gene, and uh, he got that from his mother, and. So when I started to show an interest in, in performing, my dad was thrilled to bits because this was something that, you know, all of a sudden I'm following in his footsteps. So not only am I daddy's girl, but suddenly I'm daddy's girl who wants to follow in his footsteps. And so when I started to show an interest in all this performing lark, um, he was really interested and keen and um, we used to, you know, used to drive me all over the place doing little shows and things like that. And then as I got older, I started to perform in pubs and clubs and things. And my dad would take me out and he'd do all work, all the music for me. And I'd be like, doing so he was really like my roadie. It was quite funny. Um, but prior to that, yeah, you're right. I, when I was, um, when I was about 15, my dad was, who was a joiner by trade, um, but my dad was doing loft conversions and I would go along with him and, and help, help him with these <laughs> loft conversions. So I used to, you know, do that, Kim, unscrew that, Kim, hold that, Kim, where's the spirit level, you know, and it was, it was great. I had my own little overalls and my mum used to pack us lunch and we'd go off together. But so, you know, we've always, me and dad have always done something together, whatever that something was. And he, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't mind me telling you that he's my biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> Although he'd have quite a lot of stiff competition, I think, from Scott and many others uh, <laughs> as to being your biggest fan. You know, obviously, we've talked about your dad and his uh, cancer um, diagnosis. Now, just going back to the Pride of Britain, Kim, um, you know, there are many people who win awards who have suffered themselves and then gone on to do other things i just you know obviously i've been doing it forever um mm -hmm. but you have been very actively a part of the pride of britain family for quite a number of years now i've found that being around these sensational people just lifts me um yeah. in a way that nothing else does have you found that as well I have, you know, I think it is one of those things you can't, you can't help it. Something rubs off on you, I think. It's, um, I think the very first year I started doing it was quite, uh, I was quite, it was quite daunting for me because I was, I was quite, I was, I would get super emotional, but not on the, not on the night. I got, I get emotional the day after which was, you know, for me, when you, when you think about it, because obviously we have jobs to do and with, you know, it's hard not to be, you are emotional, of course you are, but for us to stand on stage and fall to pieces would be the wrong thing to happen. Correct. So actually you tend to keep it all in, don't you? And then the next day when you're thinking about it, you, you just, you know, um, and, I, you know, in the beginning I was just, I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure how I was going to react and actually I was absolutely inspired by these wonderful people that I've met. You know, their stories move you and they lift you and they encourage you to want to be better. And, you know, it, there aren't many women in, as much in the public eye who have gone on to marry a member of the military. And uh, I first met your Scott 
at the party that we always have after the Pride of Britain. It is then. I will admit I do imbibe a glass or two um, <laughs> after the event. And and you said, what do you think of him then? And I, I thought, oh, it was incredible. And as you know, you know, I'm an honorary group captain in the Royal Air Force. And, uh, and you spoke about the paras, of course, Scottish member of the paras. But that's yeah. something which is um, very much a part of you and your history, isn't it, too? It is, yeah. My my granddad was airborne, first airborne division, uh, and he was. Um, oh, he, we, well, we've. I mean, he never really spoke an awful lot about his time in the military, but I don't think very often they did back in the day. And I, you know, when we think about it now, and we know so much more about mental health and PTSD and everything. You know, I, I think almost certainly we could we can probably guarantee that my granddad would have been suffering with PTSD. Yeah. Um, given the fact that he was, you know, he was he got the French star, he was at Sicily. I remember him telling me that he flew his glider into the sea in Sicily, not on purpose, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> but he, he told me that because of course they were wooden, weren't they? Wooden gliders. Yeah then and uh, he told me how he ripped the door off and used it as a raft until somebody came to rescue wow. him it's quite an insane story and of course he was at Arnhem and he was prisoner of war at Arnhem actually um and he um my grandma who was pregnant with my dad at the time got a telegram saying that he was MIA so his mission in action presumed dead um and oh, then yeah. uh was notified a month or so later to say no actually he wasn't he was he was prisoner of war um and when i met scott that was kind of anthony lovely anthony cotton who we know does does so much for for the military and is wonderful and is one of my good friends and he actually introduced scott and i um because he'd met scott during one of the barracks visits that he'd done and befriended him and um had told scott about my links to the army in particular the paris and so that was one of the big conversations that Scott and I very first had. And he said to me, I will find out what I can about your granddad. And I was like, oh, that would be amazing. Not thinking that he would. And he actually did. He went and found um, the welfare card that the Red Cross had um, had sent, um, the, the POW, the MIA and all the rest of it, and all, where they'd sent it to my grandma's name. And it was just incredible. So, and he went and found out more about him and told, was able to tell my dad more about his own father, which was just an amazing thing to be to be able to, you know, to, to be able to be given. What an incredible bond to start with, Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. I mean, we have so we do have a lot in common when it comes to that, and yeah. I'm so proud of of him. And then I always say that to him: I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of everything you do. And he just goes. It's just my job. (laughs) (laughs) He's a lovely, lovely, lovely human being, your husband, I have to say. He is. And it was it's been so wonderful, you know, through Pride of Britain and obviously our friendship to to witness your happiness that's come through. Because it isn't easy when you're a woman in the public eye as much as you are, Mm. and all of the things that go with that and all the comments that people make and so on and to see you so happy and settled is is fabulous actually. thank you it thank really you. is fabulous <laughs> <laughs> well give your dad my love i will and um you've got waterloo road coming up you've yes. got you're back doing morning live yes yes, yes. and a million other things coming up <laughs> i know but um <laughs> But most importantly, uh, get that date in your diary for Pride of Britain at the end of October this year, please, Mrs. I will. I will. Um, we will be there. <laughs> yeah. And, and thank you, Kim, for being part of the, the, the Pride family. So um, we're most appreciative and we love you very thank much. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love you too. Thank you. At TSB, we're proud to partner with the Pride of Britain Awards because we want to say thank you to all the everyday heroes to the ones who put the fun in fundraising, or those who speak up for others, to the good-natured few who plant seeds to feed communities, and to the warm-hearted people who always have the kettle ready. TSB partners the Pride of Britain Awards, thanking those who help others, because that's life made more. Now, my next guest is a woman who's faced unbelievable tragedy 
and challenge. Margaret Aspinall lost her 18-year-old son James in the Hillsborough disaster and she has been campaigning for justice for James and the 95 other people who lost their lives ever since. Over three decades, she and her fellow campaigners have shown remarkable strength, dignity and tenacity in the face of unbelievable odds against the establishment. She is here to explain how and why she's managed to keep going and why James is still such a presence in her life. Margaret Aspinall, I have to say that you are one of the most extraordinary women I've ever known. I grew up in North Wales and I know the spirit of the Liverpool people and the love that there is there. And uh, and I remember Hillsborough happening in 1989. Uh, I was 28 at the time and... Um, we couldn't, couldn't believe. I was living in Leeds, and and so Sheffield was, you know, just down the road, and I couldn't. None of us could believe what was happening. There was, mm-hmm. I, I think, of all things that I've ever seen and witnessed in my life, it was probably the most horrific thing that I've seen, um, because it was inexplicable. There was no reason for it. And um, do you find a lot of people say the same to you, even now, even after all of these decades have passed? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, an awful lot of people, you know, are still suffering for what they saw on that day, you know, for what they went through. A lot of the survivors, I've met quite a few of them. And it's really sad when you listen to them, you know, they're still crying when they mention Hillsborough. It's very, very difficult for people to get over, really. No more so than the 97 families who lost their loved ones, yeah. <clears throat> you know. And it's been a horrendous, horrendous 30-odd years for the families and them survivors. But we've had so much great support from the ordinary people as well as some celebrities, you know, and that keeps you going. Does it keep you going, Margaret? I mean, it, it's, you know, sometimes... Um, on that, you lost James, and I, yes. you know, as a mum, I can't imagine that you know mm. uh, the pain that, that that must have caused. And as you say, there were ninety-seven families who uh, lost loved ones. Mm-hmm. But you know, what was that moment where you thought, "I'm not taking this. I'm not standing for this." Was it the reporting of Hillsborough? Yes, obviously, the reporting, obviously, what was the headlines on a certain newspaper. Um, it really, really upset me more than anything to say what they're saying. Was our James ticketless? No. Was James drunk? No, he had no drink in him. Was James late? No, he was in the ground early. He was in the ground around about quarter past one. And she said all these things, these scenarios, and it was James's first away game. And that was what was so horrendous for me. I let him go because he was just 18 to his first away game. And little did I know it was going to cost him his life. Even now talking about it, it still gets to me. Mm -hmm. Because, and the reason I say that, Carol, is there's been no accountability for that. And that's what angers me because I remember... Um, four weeks after the disaster, it was only four weeks after, and I I don't like to say this or talk ill of anybody, but Mrs Thatcher's words to me were absolutely horrendous, absolutely horrendous. What did she say? We were all lined up in the crypt of the Anglican Cathedral because they had a memorial service within four weeks. And Margaret Thatcher wanted to meet all the families. And we all got told to go down to the crypt. And we went down to the bottom of the crypt to meet Mrs. Thatcher. And we were all regimented in a line. And she came along each line, shaking everybody's hands and talking to them. And, of course, when she got to me, I was still, my head was all over the place. Obviously, it was only four weeks after. You didn't have a chance to grieve. And she, I said to her, Mrs. Thatcher, I said, I can't shake your hand. 
I said, I'm not being disrespectful, but I can't shake your hand till I find out why my son died at Hillsborough. I said, he only went to a football match and he just didn't come home. And she said to me, there were seven, exact words, and they stick in my head. There were 750 policemen on duty that day, my dear. And I said, well, what would they do, Mrs. Thatcher? There was more than that, but what would they do? And her words to me were, their job, my dear, their job. And I'd, I completely lost it. I said, they didn't do the job. At the time, it was 95 people who died on that yeah. day. I, I said, 95 people are dead, Mrs. Thatcher. My son is over the road in a grave. I said, they did not. She said, I better step away from you, my dear. She said, you are so angry. <laughs> I could not believe that woman said them words to me. So I just said to my husband, I have to get out of here now, Jimmy, before I lose it. Yeah. Because I do not want to show her any disrespect, even though I felt she deserved it for saying that. I I just got outside and I just burst out crying. And I went over to my son's grave and apologised to him on her behalf. On her behalf, I apologised to my son at the grave. And I knew then it was going to be a cover-up. I, I just got that feeling, oh, my God, this is going to be a cover-up. Them headlines, her saying that, their job, my dear. And I thought, I've got to try and get myself together because I think we've got a big fight on our hands. And we did. You were proven right. We knew things were going on behind the scenes. We knew Mrs. Thatcher had a meeting with Mr. Duckenfield on the following morning at Sheffield. All that was going on behind closed doors. And then if you go back into them days, into the early 80s, you can always remember that the miners' strike. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn here. This should never be edited because it's the truth. Yeah, and people have got to hear the truth. But that was Not, more or less based around Sheffield, wasn't it? Exactly, and it was oh, the yeah. South Yorkshire Police with the yeah. miners, if you think yeah. on. And there was no way she wanted her police force to be blamed for Hillsborough. It, do you know what, Margaret? I had never put the two together before. Well, try and put them together, Carol, and think yeah. about it. Well, um, it makes... You know, like I said, I was living up in Leeds through the 80s. So, you know, it was very big, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, it was, yes. and I saw, used to see Arthur Scargill in reception at Yorkshire Television where we used to record Countdown. So it was like, you know, and it was it was the only story, wasn't it? Let's be fair. Yes. Um, I hadn't, but if you link them together, you'll find she owed a debt. No, I hadn't, I hadn't linked it. Yes. Yeah. And she owed a debt, really, didn't she, to the police? Yeah. for what she'd done with the miners. Yeah. And uh, that debt, I feel, was repaid by Hillsborough. That, I've always felt that, and I still feel that to this day. It, Nothing will alter my opinion on that. No, I'm, well, I, I, I'm not surprised about that. So the, this catastrophe, this tragedy, happened on the 15th of April 1989. Mm -hmm. What happened in the sort of early 90s? You know, how... How did you cope? Very, very difficult time, for not just for me, but for all of the families, you know, and them survivors as well. Yeah. You've got to always remember them, who was part and parcel, yeah. a, you know, a massive cover-up against them as well. Yeah. But what obviously, you know, as you know, we had the Taylor inquiry That's in the very, very beginning, yeah. and Taylor really put the blame on the police you know, he said they froze because Duckenfield, if everybody thinks on about this, Duckenfield at the beginning tried to blame the fans for kicking the gates in. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so he completely lied. He completely lied and nothing much is said about that. So when he, was the Taylor report then? Early 90s, I would yeah. say. Maybe late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. I can't quite remember the dates now. Yeah, But anyway, the Taylor report came out and obviously it put the blame onto the police that, you know, 
they froze. And we all thought, well, that's it. Then they, there it is. They they didn't do the job. They froze. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and feel lied opening the gates. He, he tried to blame the fan. It's all come out. No. And then we had what you call after that a generic inquest. And that was to find out how they died, where they died, what caused it, and and all of that, the generic inquest. And that went on for a very, very long time. But we couldn't play any part. We couldn't bring our own witnesses to that inquest. Why not? Well, Dr. Popper chose who came forward. Yeah. And we we couldn't get involved in that. Obviously, Popper, who was the coroner at the time, yeah. He was the, yeah, he had, it was up to him what witnesses came forward. So, Margaret, can I ask you a question? So, even just explaining, you know, there was a Taylor report, then there was a generic inquest. And yeah. even, you know, coming forward in de- the decades that you had to follow through with this. You're not a woman who has been educated in the law no. and you're not a barrister and you're not, oh God, a, no. you know, and, and all of those different things who would go, ah, yes, well, you know, I know what the next procedure is. I mean, how on earth, how on earth did you deal with that? Did you I don't know. I wouldn't even say I know all about it now, to be honest with you. But I did know certain aspects of the law that was completely and morally unjust and unwrong. Because what the first thing I always remember more than anything, I had four other children. James was my eldest. He was just 18. And then I had um, younger children who were six, seven, nine. And my other son now, who was... 16 at the time and then James yeah and so obviously I didn't have funding I didn't have money you know I was at home looking after my children and what I got me was we had to look to pay for a barrister so what happened at the generic inquest our chairman at the time which is obviously you must know Trevor Hicks yeah. who'd done an amazing job, you know, keeping the group together. He had to ask families, have we got £3,000 each to give to a ba- for a barrister to represent us at the generic inquest? And I thought, wait, why do we have to pay for an inquest for something that wasn't our fault, which I couldn't understand? So... 40, 42 of the families paid. I ended up borrowing money of my family to pay towards this uh, Mr. King. It cost the group 150-odd thousand pounds at the time. So only 40-odd families paid for that. But that barrister, one barrister, one, which was Mr. King, he had to represent the all the 95 besides all the fans and the supporters who were there. I was shocked because Duckenfield had his own barrister when we got there. City Council, Sheffield City Council had their own. The police had their own. The ambulance had their own. So our one was against, I'd say, about seven. We had no chance. So uh, at the end of all of the inquests and everything else, when the jury came back, and it was accidental. I think it was uh, 7 to 11. Yeah. Against us. I'm not too sure. 7 or 8 to, yeah. to 10. I don't know. Against us. And come back with accidental death. I thought, how can they come back with accidental death? These people have died in different pens. How can they all die in an accident? Even then we knew it was absolutely wrong and corrupt. What was going on, we don't know, to be honest with you. But then after that, we all got, when that came out, it nearly killed the families, to be honest. And we thought, oh, my God, we can't just let this go. We just can't let it lie. Where did you find that strength? Because every system, every institution is battering you. 
Mm. Where does it come from? I, I can only say it probably come from certain words when I was growing up, what my mother used to say to me. Yeah. You know, and it always, always stayed in my mind when I was campaigning on behalf of the families, when I was running around meeting governments, obviously prime ministers, doing all that. I, I was never a person who could speak to anybody. I'm not as... I'm not a speaker. I'm not a professional speaker. I'm not, but I do my best, and that's all you could do. But I always remember my mum. One time when I was a child, and and when I say a child, I was about eleven or twelve. Yeah. And my mum had eleven of us, but she always brought us up to be honest. Yeah. And truthful, and if you admit the truth, you'll never get into trouble for speaking the truth. Because lies hurt people and hurt so many people. And this particular day, I remember, it sticks in my mind. We were, my mum was pushing the pram with other children in. Yeah. I was walking in ahead of her with my two brothers. Yeah. And I heard my mum laughing at something behind me. So obviously I turned around to see what, was, what yeah. she was laughing at. And as I turned round, I went bang into a lamppost. <laughs> right? Yeah. Bang. And I, was, I didn't half hurt my head. And I remember, oh, I'm thinking my mum was going to give me a cuddle. No, my mum shouted at me. And her words were, and I think it, it helps anybody, do yeah. not look behind. That's your past. You are walking into your future. And anything in your past that you can change when you grow up, you must do it. Yes, it's past. 95 people died. We can't bring them back. But we've certainly got to change things for the future. And I think that gave me the energy, the strength, the commitment. And I'll always have the commitment for the ordinary people. Things we knew. Because we've been through so much when you can go back from the generic inquest to the um, the mini inquest, generic inquest, obviously. Then we had um, traditional reviews. Then we had private prosecution. Then Jack Straw gave us the scrutiny, which yeah. was an absolute disgrace. What he gave us was a disgrace. And he said at the end of the scrutiny... Families will get the report first before anybody. When the report came out, we got asked to go up to the House of Commons to receive the report from Jack Straw. We found out when we got there, the police had had that report four weeks before us. That was a disgrace. So they were prepared. Yeah, of course they were. They were prepared. And all the time, you think it's like, your hopes are raised. You think maybe we'll have, you know, something good will happen. Maybe something will go it. Maybe we'll have a breakthrough here. Maybe justice, true sense of justice. Well, I'll tell you something, Carol. When we went, when we went for the private prosecution. Yeah. When right. was this, which was this one, Margaret? That was one of the latest, the last ones we had before we got this new inquest. Okay. Yeah. We get to the private prosecution. Now, this is what people wouldn't understand. The jury get picked. Yeah. And it was Mr. Hooper who was the judge. And I will never forget, we went through all the evidence, a lot of evidence, that, by the way, we didn't have everything. It was all kept away from us because we were fighting for full disclosure. <laughs> and we didn't have full disclosure until we got... The last inquest, okay? But anyway, when I get to the judge at the end of the trial looks at the jury and says to the jury, right, these are the points that you have to go through. Now, if you find Mr. Duckenfield and Mr. Murray not guilty on the first question, yeah, you come out, you don't go through the others, you just come out with not guilty. Okay. But if you find him guilty on the first one, you go to the second one. You find him guilty on the second one, you go to the third. The jury go out. After a couple of days, they came back to ask a question. 
on the third point. The judge looked at the families and he goes, this is exact words and you can look it up. And I knew then, oh my God, another cover up. He turned around and it doesn't mean they found him, them guilty on the first one or the second. Wait a minute, I wanted to stand up and say, wait a minute, they must have done. To get to the third question, they've got to find him guilty on yeah. my mother too. Yeah. So what are you talking about? But you couldn't. You had to sit there and he goes, it doesn't mean they found him guilty. On the other hand, I thought, oh, my God, does he think we're thick? And he turned around then to the jury. And do you know what he said to the jury? If you find them, them guilty... What message are you sending out to the emergency no, services? No. Okay, now you can look that up. What does that tell you? I went, that's it, all over. Finished, all over. And they came back. They couldn't find, they found Mr. Murray not guilty. And it was an open verdict on Mr. Duckenfield. Would you believe that? Didn't you know that, Carol? I didn't know that, no. Well, look at us. I, I, I absolutely know What that. message are you sending out to the emergency services? What does that tell you? Extraordinary. I mean, probably, I mean this, is what, this is everything that we've had to go through. I remember I was hosting Loose Women when it, it was the, pub, the, the public inquiry that was published. Um, that day where the, that report confirmed that 41 deaths could have been avoided and 164 statements from police officers had been doctored. Not one. Exactly. Not two. Not 12. No. No. 164 statements, not had yeah. been inaccurate, had been doctored. Doctored. Yeah, all edited out, all edited out. And I'll tell what? you something, Margaret, and this is, the, this is the truth. I can remember I was hosting New Swimming that day, and all I could think of was, in my lifetime, you know, so I'm 61 now, in my lifetime, I had, I was astonished at the scale of corruption because I have been brought up to believe, like you, I have been brought up to believe that there was good and bad and that, you know, all police officers were good and all nurses were good and all doctors were, you know, that's what you brought up to believe in the 60s and 70s. And this exactly. Was, you know, and this shook me, not just me, I'm just saying this because we're chatting, but it yes. absolutely shook every ounce of confidence I had in institutions after that. You had to go through those decades, Margaret, all of you, had to go through all those decades, all of those steps to get to that point. And all those years later, there it was, the truth. Because in the very early days, they had like a, what you call a steering committee. Yeah. Now, in the early days, I, I, I can't say how early, but it was in the 90s because I got the letters at home. Yeah. And... Uh, I remember the first thing I wanted to know is who helped my son? Yeah. Who had, and I will say this openly, Carol, who had the honour, and I will say honour, to have been with my son when he took his last breath on this earth. I was asking for video coverage of James. Is there any video coverage at all of James? What time? Why did I get two different times of death for James? And I honestly believe one of them fitted in the narrative for yeah. them. Yeah. I still believe that. But why have I got two different times of death? Who helped my son? Who brought him out onto the pitch? I got a letter, and I've got the letter at home. I've still got the original letter from the steering committee. There's no video coverage. There's hardly anything of James except the little video coverage where... He was getting help. No video coverage. Time, uh, two different times death. One was a typing error. A typing error. It's such, such something that's so important to me. Who helped my son? 
we know her fans help them, but we don't know who. So I was asking these questions in the very early days, and what I live with now, all these years later, is a lot of guilt, an awful lot of guilt. Why? Why? Are you why do I? I'll tell you why, Carol. I, this is so. I, I don't want to end up crying again because I talk about this. I end up. It really gets me. The cover up gets me. I get to the last inquest that we fought so hard for and got them verdicts overturned and got the correct verdict of unlawfully killed. I find out on my son's one, there was a lot of video coverage of James. Oh, God. A Wait a minute. A lot of video coverage of James. James on the pitch early on his back with his arms outstretched, not in the recovery position. A policeman standing by him, taking his throwing a coat over his face. Pathologists, they have a pathologist coming for each individual at the last inquest. He gets asked by Mr. Goldberg, Goldring, sorry, are you saying James could have been saved? And he said, with early intervention, James could have been saved. You find that out 27 years later. And I thought, Oh, my God, why didn't I look into this more for James? And the only answer I can give for that is I could never talk about James to anybody because I, I wouldn't be doing my job as a chairman yeah. for the other 96, yeah. at the, you know. And I thought, if I talk about James, that's not including then all of those people yeah. who died. Yeah. And they're just as important as James. So I used to say to James, when I was doing interviews and everything, I'm putting you two on side, love. You're not part of this. Um, you're not part of this. So forgive me, I'm putting you two on side. And that's how I dealt with it. I used to try and pretend James wasn't part of it. So I didn't look into everything of James yeah. when I was doing things for the whole group. If you see what I mean. I do, I do see. I but, do understand, yeah. Um, the day that that pathologist said that about he could have been saved, that nearly killed me. I wanted to crash my car going home. Mm. But yet again, I ended up going straight to the cemetery. I'm apologising to James again because I felt I'd let him down. Oh, yeah. You mightn't understand that, Carol. God, I still feel I'd let James down. But you hadn't let him down, Margaret. That you, you've, you've done the opposite because... And for all of those people, and the, you know, Liverpool is a very special city. The, the city is a city. I, I mean, I love my city. Yeah. I mean, we've got bad ones, obviously, like everywhere else has. But the vast yeah. majority of people, you hate one, you hate us all. Yeah. Yes. And we, we, we click together, we unite, mm. and any injustice, we will fight for. Yeah. And that's what Liverpool people have done. Yeah. And the support we've had, but not just from Liverpool, indeed from all over the world as well as all over other cities. And we've proven it right. We changed the media perception yeah. against us. Yes. We proved to them that they were all innocent. You know. Yes. We we all we got the correct verdict. And we had if we hadn't a campaign, Carol, the way we had. There's nothing down for anybody else in this no, country. And they would be remembered with the terrible headlines that happened, you know, immediately after. I want to talk to you. Obviously, this is a you know, podcast about um, our extraordinary winners, and you are one of the most extraordinary, Margaret Aspinall. Yeah. Uh, 2013, when you could, you know, you said earlier about it, it made a difference when public voices you know, you know, said that they were supporting you. And you said that that did make a difference at various times. And you came to the Pride of Britain Awards and, you you know, you had this, I can remember you coming on and, I, I you know, extraordinary standing ovation that went on for forever. Um, what was that like for you, Margaret? That It was absolutely amazing, to be honest with you, because... 
not only from me, but the people who were there that day. Yeah. And I've been to the Pride and won awards at the Pride of Britain. You listen to each and every one of them stories. They are the heroes. They're just ordinary people, like you say yourself when you do your, um, yeah. when you come on and you do your speech and you say these are ordinary people who have fought or have done yeah. different things in their life for charities, for other things. And it's not about celebrities. Uh, to me, it was a wonderful day, a wonderful privilege and an, uh, an honour and to be there and to represent all of them families who had lost from Hillsborough. I felt that award was a big achievement for them. Yeah. You know, and they thoroughly deserved it for the campaigning they've done, for the... For the support we've had from ordinary people, it's for the whole city, and I was very privileged, humbled, to have been there and accept that award on behalf of everybody. And did you feel, Margaret? You know, you were saying obviously there was, you know, there was the concert at Anfield to raise money for, yes. you know, lawyers' fees and all of that. But did you feel it was a bit different being? you know, down there, and, and it's like the whole country is sort of represented there. I don't mean that to sound trite, but... No, no. You know, you know what I mean, as much as you can in a room, I suppose, that, that, that there was this support not just from the people of Liverpool, but from everyone. Exactly. Everyone. Did you feel... Absolutely, yes, I did. Uh, absolutely, because what it showed... By ordinary people, helping ordinary people is the yeah. word. Look what they've all achieved. The Hillsborough Family Support Group, we get the name of, God, you've changed things in football. Fans are treated differently and everything. But without that support from ordinary people, yeah, nothing would have changed. Yeah, Because without not only the monetary support, but I'm talking about the support within and when I came home from, I, as I say, the private prosecution, I just thought I can't go on anymore. Enough's enough. I've got family to look after. I just can't carry on anymore. Got to give up. And I went into the office, and the truth was, you put your laptop, uh, your computer on. It was full of messages. Please don't give up. We are behind you. We are behind you. Then the phone calls were coming in one after the other. Margaret, please don't give up. We are all here behind you. That gave you the strength. Can't give up. Because if you're not true to yourself, how can you be true to others? You can't, can you? So I've got to do some. All these people want change. They all need change. To me, that helped us and gave the families the strength. Knowing we had all these, I mean, obviously we had a lot against us as well. Yeah. But you look at more. I look more at the positive side rather than the negative side. Yeah. Of it, if you look concentrate, forget the negative. You get them everywhere. But the vast majority of people are wonderful, and we knew there's laws that's got to be changed for the good of the people who are fighting now, like Grenfell. Yeah. You know, the arena bombing and things that's gone on in the past. Yeah. Laws have got to change. And now we're concentrating at the moment now. That's where I'm concentrating on with uh, Andy Burnham oh, yeah. to hopefully get this Hillsborough law. It's no good to the Hillsborough family. So I'm not doing it for us, but we are doing it for the ordinary people. Because why should you have to have a law and within that law we want um, a duty of candour? Why do you need a duty of candour? Isn't it the police there to tell the truth? I would Anyway, so, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah. But we didn't get the truth from the police. Yeah. And Andy, Andy Burnham has been very close to this, obviously. You know, oh, yeah, the, yeah. When he was in the cabinet, wasn't he? And he came up to Anfield, didn't he? And he was... He was That's right, yeah. yeah. And then persuaded the Prime Minister at the time to, to have the... Put this Independent up. panel as well. Yeah. And well, <laughs> and to be fair, Theresa May was very good as well. Okay. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got to say, 
I had meetings with Theresa May a number of times and everything I asked for and she promised she would give. Did she? We did receive, yes. Amazing. I've, I've got to be very honest about it, but there's also other MPs, you know, yeah. Maria Regal's been amazing. You know, she's been amazing. There's Derek Twig. Yeah. There's Steve Rotherham, Andy Byrne. There's quite a few. Yeah. You know, that has been really good, but there's also some. Yeah. I always remember, um, I think it was Mr. Cameron, when he said, it's a, it's like putting a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat. Well, I'd done a little talk in the House of Commons. Yeah. After the verdicts. Yeah. Of unlawfully killed. Yeah. And Andy, Andy Burnham sat there. I asked Andy, I said, I don't want to speak on behalf of the families now. I'd like to speak on behalf of Margaret Aspinall, yeah. who lost her son. And Andy set that up, and we had some from the House of Lords come in to listen to me. And I remember as they were going out, I said, oh, by the way, tell Mr. Cameron we found the black cat. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah, because I I thought even to use them words, it's, you know, I thought that was a disgrace. Can but I don't get me that? wrong, he was quite nice, Mr. Cameron. I've met him a couple of times. Yeah. But You've that just angered me, you know. There's a saying, isn't there? There's a quote that says, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. There are many of us who are very lucky, who never get our lives, our families are not involved in tragedies. What would you say to people listening if something, another tragedy happens, should they come forward and show their support, even if they have no connection? It's very important because you, you can't, don't forget, your mind, when a tragedy, God forbid, it happens again, which I think, obviously, law of averages, there probably will be, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah. But I think that the thing is that people have got to stick together. You, I've always said, if we hadn't to campaign and carried on, that verdict that we had, accidental death, would have stood. Now, people were saying, even MPs, and, and well-educated people were saying to me, Margaret, you'll never get them verdicts changed. Yeah. There's no way that the government or anybody will allow 96 verdicts to be altered. You'll never get them changed. Well, you just look at the Hillsborough families. Yeah. We carried on fighting. We overturned them verdicts. We ended up getting the correct verdict. The only thing we haven't got is accountability. Yeah. And why haven't we got accountability? Because, yet again, I say the last trial that we had with Duckenfield and the other three men in, in there, which was Denton, Foster and Metcalf, it was a cover-up. Again? It was another cover Yeah, it's a cover-up over a cover-up. Because he threw it out. He threw it out on a technicality. What was the technicality? The technicality, as far as I'm aware, was when they gave evidence to the Taylor inquiry in late 80s or early 90s. The very first one. The very first one. Yeah. They went under oath. But that evidence, they went under oath. Now, this is the police, went under oath. So that evidence could not be brought forward at this last trial. But that evidence gave us the accidental death verdict. If you see what I'm trying to say. Yeah, to know exactly what you're saying. So it, you can... So it's a cover-up over a cover-up over a cover-up. Yeah. That we've still got to try and alter. I just want to ask, you know, how do you continue to remember James, you know, as the years... Uh, as the years go by, because it's, what, now, 33, 33 years? years. 33 yeah. years, yeah. Mm. How, yeah. How, how do you mark it, if you do mark it? I'm sure you do. 
Oh gosh, I, I mark James every day anyway, to be honest with you. I've got a photograph of the side of my bed of James. Beautiful picture where he's smiling, he's happy. I open my eyes and I just say, morning, James. Hope you're all right. Just go down the stairs. I carry on. I think of James every day. All these years on, there's not a day goes by. But sometimes when I'm doing a lot of washing in the machine for the other children, and I'm, I'm pulling the doll out to peg on the line, I'm going, none of this is yours, James. I talk to him. <laughs> Look at all this washing your mum's got, and yeah, I haven't got nothing of yours here. Where's all this washing come from? But that keeps you going. Because when you're talking about them, when you're thinking about them, they've not gone. They're there with you. And I often believe, I do believe, James has given me a lot of strength also. But through James's death, and I know this sounds awful, I mean, I get invited to the games and things like that. The club has been amazing. It's not me that should be there. Yeah. I know it should be James. But I know the reasons why I'm there, if you understand what I mean. I do. And I say, I always say, James, look at the lovely people I've met, James, because I've lost you. But look what you've shown me, all these lovely people, how good people are, how generous they are. I'd have never have known that, only through losing poor James and the other 96, obviously. And it's because of them that I've met these lovely people. It's wonderful to talk to you, Margaret, and um, hopefully you can come back and see us at some point. I hope so. And, uh, you are, I mean, you, you know, you'll hear this all the time. Oh, Margaret Aspinall, you're an inspiration. And you'll have heard that 10,000 times, but you really are because it's uh, the Hillsborough tragedy rocked this country. And, and there was the secondary earthquake was that justice took yeah. you know so long to to be seen to be done really and and even then not in full um, exactly so we congratulate you on the successes you had and and send our love genuinely to everybody uh, who was involved in the support group and um and to you especially and uh, and it's um, lovely to catch up after all this time, madam. Yeah. Same here as well, Carol. It really was. And you've not changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking younger every time I see you. <laughs> Margaret. It's called Botox, Margaret. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, it's done you the world of good, Carol. You look really well. <laughs> oh, I love you lots, Margaret Aspinall. Oh, lovely to see you, Carol. Take care. <laughs> It's hard to imagine what Margaret and, of course, everybody involved in the campaigns have been through. But hearing how people cope and uh, what motivates people like Margaret and, and others to carry on, well, I hope you agree with me that it's, it's always inspiring. So, our good friend JK is back now to share another of your stories of pride. And, as usual, it's about someone very special indeed. When you think about retiring, what springs to mind? Putting your feet up with a cuppa, long afternoons in the garden, or just relaxing at home with the family? Today's story is about a remarkable lady who, after spending her whole life caring for others, decided she wasn't ready to slow down just yet. Instead, Diane Robertson-Bell has embarked on a new stage of her career, working as a nurse in some of the world's most dangerous places. After leaving her job at London's Royal Free Hospital, she continued working A&E shifts while she studied for a diploma in tropical nursing. Age 63, she joined Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, a charity that sends medical help to patients in need across the world, including to natural disasters and war zones. You see all these terrible images on TV and you think, I'm sure I could do something to help, even if it's not very much. I'm sure I can make a difference, she says. It was something I'd often thought of doing, but now I find myself without a marriage or mortgage and I knew I really could this time. My family and friends thought I was a little mad, but they knew better than to interfere. Diane's first mission was to Papua New Guinea, where she looked after people in remote tribes, often in conflict with each other. The injuries we'd see were relentless, she says matter-of-factly. 
Many of the men carry bush knives and they use them on a regular basis. Every other night, I find myself preparing people for surgery who had been attacked with machetes or shot with homemade guns or bows and arrows. By the time she celebrated her 70th birthday in 2018, she had worked in a range of places, including South Sudan, Yemen and Syria. She's helped to deliver babies, treat injuries and provide support to people who don't always have that option. Today, her commitment to making sure everyone can access global healthcare remains just as strong. What an amazing lady. Wow, what an amazing lady. At a time when most of us would be slowing down, Diane is still dedicating her life to others and providing help to people who need it most. Absolutely wonderful. We all collectively doff our caps to you, Diane. Thank you for all that you do. Now, we're always keen here to hear more of your stories about the people and the things that are making a difference. So please do get in touch for the chance for them to be featured in our slot called Your Stories of Pride. We look forward to hearing from you about that. Now, our thanks go to our guests, Margaret Aspinall and to Kim Marsh, to our friends at TSB and of course to JK. But most importantly, to you for joining us on this podcast. Until next time, keep in touch, let us know what you think and subscribe, if you may, if you can, via any of our Pride of Britain social media channels. That's all from us today. We love, absolutely love having you with us. So see you next time when we'll be talking to more extraordinary people, the Pride of Britain.